to the perks of being a book lover a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends i'm carrie and i bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership and i'm amy i tend to be upbeat social and some people say i can be a little overly enthusiastic that some people would be me (laughs) each week we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest we not only talk about what we're reading but also book adjacent topics such as Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists. Film adaptations that we've seen. And other bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. Thanks for joining us. This week, we welcome special guest Rachel Harper to Perks. Rachel is on the faculty at Spalding University's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing in Louisville, Kentucky, and is the author of three novels. Her most recent one, The Other Mother, was published in 2022 and has racked up the accolades. It was named one of Amazon's best books of 2022, was a Good Morning America buzz pick, and has been awarded the American Library Association Stonewall Book Award for Excellence in LBGTQIA Fiction. We chat with Rachel about how her book is like an onion with many layers to peel back and explore. While it deals with motherhood, it also deals with father-child relationships, identity, race, and how our past affects our present. So check our social media later this week. We'll be giving away one hardback copy of The Other Mother to one lucky reader to add to their ever-growing book stack. But first, you attended a superb owl party yesterday. You know, I did not know what that term referred to. I saw it on the list of things we were going to talk about. I'm like, what do you mean I went to a superb owl party? What are you talking about? So that is from What We Do in the Shadows. Did you ever watch that? What We, we tried. We watched one or two and couldn't get into it, but maybe okay. we needed to try it longer. Okay. Well, every season we've watched. And so in one of the episodes, they get invited to a, well, it's a Super Bowl party, but they... They read it as a superb owl party. So ever since I have referred to Super Bowl parties as superb owl, because honestly, that's the kind of party that I would be interested in going to the superb owl party where they have, you know, different owls you can meet. And I guess one of them is the most superb. Uh, well, I, I do love I do love owls. I think yeah. they're really cool birds. Yeah. But, so, uh, uh, you know, I don't have too much to say about my Super Bowl party, except for I enjoy going and hanging out with friends and eating way too much cheesy, you know, goodness, cheesy goodness and rolling home and going straight to bed. <laughs> That's what I did. So, but I've had sort of a full week of things. So on Friday night, I posted this about it on our Instagram feed, but my husband and I for pre-Valentine's Day, went to dinner and then to see Trevor Noah, the comedian who used to be the Daily Show host. I think he has stepped down. I'm not sure who's taking his spot, but I have been wanting to see Trevor Noah for a very long time. And I was very excited to get to go see him this past weekend. You know, I didn't ever really watch the Daily Show. I mean, I would see clips and things of his, you know, his monologues. And and I've always thought he was funny, but I uh, read his memoir oh, I don't know, four or five years ago. It's called Born a Crime. And I have loved him ever since. (laughs) So 
I don't read very many celebrity memoirs, and I think his might have been one of the first that I read. And since then, I have read more. But what I liked about it was it wasn't really too much about his life as a celebrity. It was about his childhood growing up in South Africa. He was born during apartheid, and he had a black mother and a white father, and his very existence was proof of a crime. That's where the title comes from. And, you know, as he grows up, apartheid kind of phases out. Uh, and the country is going through ta- transition. And uh, that's what his book is about. And I have admired him ever since. He seems to be a very keen observer of the world. And I appreciate that. Do you ever watch his comedy specials? I have not, but I need to go back on and, and see some of them. We went to dinner beforehand at this little place downtown that my husband and I like. And I got this dish that I often get when we go there, which is this kale salad. Now, I know a kale salad doesn't sound super exciting, but it's a really good kale salad. And I have them put blackened salmon on top of it. And they chop up their kale like really finely. Mm -hmm. And I had forgotten that. I mean, I cannot eat all that kale salad. I eat like half the kale salad. That is a lot of kale to eat. But as we were getting ready to leave, my husband said, I, I cannot take you anywhere looking like this. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Apparently, I had kale stuck in like five different places along my teeth. And I went into the bathroom and I tried to get it out, you know, with my fingernail and I couldn't. And I'm like, oh, dear God. So then I'm like back at the table. I'm taking a straw and trying to get it out, taking it out of there. I finally got it all, but it was not pretty. I, I just had green all over my teeth. So I, apparently I cannot eat that salad very sexily. Mm. What? Maybe you need to get yourself a little toothpick holder to carry in your bag. Maybe. I mean, my father-in-law does that. He always has a toothpick with him. I, but. I carry, they're not toothpicks, but they're like plastic. And actually I've only got one left. So now I'm having, and, and a, an actual toothpick won't fit in this holder. So I've got to rethink my, my dental your uh, toothpick situation? My, yeah, my dental supplies that I carry in my bag. You carry dental supplies in your Maybe you, I should. I'm, why am I laughing? I'm the no, one who's stuck, the, yeah, no, stuck I, with kale in my teeth. Yes, I have I have things because cause you get stuff stuck in your in your teeth and sometimes they don't want to come out. And so you need some floss or you need a, a dental yeah. or you need a pick to get it out. So everybody wants to know about, you know, the the stuff that's stuck in our teeth. But anyway, it was a very lovely night. We got anything else yesterday. I went, we we went for a very nice hike. The weather was nice and we did not see any owls or superb owls. Uh, I did not get any food stuck in my teeth during this. We also did not see Trevor Noah during our hike, but you know, it was still a nice day. I think we're going to, I think we're going to try to start taking like a hike once a month, like, Dean and I are going to go somewhere and not just walk around our neighborhood because we do that every day, but just go somewhere and take a hike. So we'll see if we stick to that. Yeah. So this just shows the different. You went to a party. You went to a play this weekend. You went to see Trevor Noah. I went for a hike. Woo! You know, I like hikes too. I like hikes too. Just not yesterday. Not this weekend. You couldn't fit it in. I couldn't fit it in. No. Yeah, I did go to a play. We haven't even talked about that, but it was excellent. Yeah. Oh, you know what, Carrie? Rachel's book, the cover of her book is amazingly beautiful. 
And as I'm thinking about it, we we talked to her about her book and about things being like an onion and peeling mm-hmm. things back. But if you look at the cover of her book, almost has that same feel to it. It is a gorgeous like, cover. It's a yeah. gorgeous cover. It looks like flower petals, delicate flower petals that you want to peel back. So let's talk to Rachel about her book. We're chatting with author Rachel Harper today. She's the author of The Other Mother, as well as some other books. And you're coming to us from California. Is that right? Yes, it is. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I finished your book a couple of days ago, and it was a book that just made me think so much about so many different topics it's it's kind of got it all. And so for our listeners, can you give us just like a slight little summary of what your book is about, The Other Mother? That was a really hard thing to do, probably, because it is about so yeah. many things. But. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's definitely about a lot of things. But at its heart, you know, I think it's a family story. Um, and it's basically about a larger extended family and different um, estrangements and fractions that have happened to them over the course of about 20 plus years. And it starts with a teenage boy going off to college and believing that uh, he's going to college where his mother went and where his father went. And his father died when he was two and a half. He's never known him that he can remember. And then what happens when he gets there is that he realizes that he's the product of a lesbian relationship and that his mom was actually with another woman and that they intended to have him and raise him together and that he's actually searching for his other mother. And so that big sort of surprise kicks off the book. And then he ends up finding other family members, meeting that other mother. You go back and forth through time and sort of understand why this secret happened and how the family in the present time is going to try to reconnect. And that's only one of the surprises or the secrets (laughs) that are in the novel. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That's the main one that we lead with. And and the rest, I hope readers, you know, will read and discover for themselves. Um, And I've actually been so happy that people have never given away other of the secrets and reveals um, in talking about the book. And it kind of reminds me of that old movie, The Crying Game. Yeah, people were like, oh, go see The Crying Game. And you're like, what's it about? Everyone's just like, well, we can't just tell you, just go see it, just go see it. No one wanted to like, reveal the secret. And I didn't know that I would write a book like that, um, that kind of had that thing. But I'm happy that, that people have held that back and let everyone discover for themselves the other twists and turns of the plot. So I'm wondering if there are sort of common threads or ideas that you've kind of played with in your books. Are there commonalities between them? Yeah, I definitely, definitely would say there are. I think first and foremost, um, I'm writing about families and I I would say I'm writing about loss. And so I'm writing about families who've suffered some type of loss. And then usually in the book, it's like the main characters struggle to create either a new sense of family, a a new like literal family, or just a new idea about their family after having suffered the loss. So I feel like I'm definitely firmly planted within the kind of family stories genre of literary fiction. But when you're starting out, you're not thinking of it that way. It's not like I sat down in my 20s and I was like, I want to become a novelist because I want to write about loss. You know, I mean, it was like that was... Never something that occurred to me. 
but after having written a couple and like talking about them and talking to my close friends who've like read everything I've written, it's like, you know, those moments are when you realize what you're doing and people step back and say, oh, you know, you write a lot about loss. You write about family and healing and, and new configurations of family. And, and it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. Whereas I'm so within the story. I'm so immersed in the specifics of my characters, the specific problem that they're dealing with, that world that I don't step out of it a lot and kind of walk away from it and look from a distance. And I don't think about themes until I'm really like editing and stuff. Um, Because for me, that's not, I mean, it's so much of writing is built on those things, but that feels like that's like English class in high school where you're like having to talk about the themes and the motifs and stuff. For me, it's just like characters, it's, it's drama, it's struggle, it's conflict, arguments, you know, that's what draws me to telling stories. So I, I just want to be in the middle of the, the meat of it. And then later I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I'm doing on a larger scale. And, and I have now like looked back and seen those connections between all three of my books. So that, that's the overarching themes, but was there a small spark that came to you that, to want to write this book? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think even though I'm writing fiction and, and all of my novels are fiction, I feel like I have used um, elements of my own life as inspiration. And so for this one, I actually had the idea many years ago, many years before I started writing it in between uh, first and second books, actually, I had this, this idea. And it was based on a couple of different parts of my life. If you just sort of read my biography, it's easy to kind of understand some of that. So, you know, I did go to Brown University myself. I had a father who was a professor. And so that's one aspect. And I'm also inspired by the sibling stuff. You know, I have two brothers. I had a brother who died early, who died young. And that loss and and dealing with that relationship, even though the elements of that character are not like my brother, but sort of a, a merger of a couple of men that I have known growing up. And then at the central part, you know, I do have experience being several different types of mothers. You know, I'm a stepmom, I am a biological mother, and I'm a mother of a child that I didn't give birth to, but my ex-partner did. So I've mothered in several different ways. And I think that throughout that experience, I've realized, you know, there's just like a lot of ups and downs and like specificities of that relationship that I wanted to explore. And I definitely also think, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, specifically about the character of Juliet, and if that is an alternate version of myself. And, and she's not really, but, but of course, I can relate emotionally to a lot of the things that she's gone through. And I definitely think some of my exes from my 20s, and, and the way that maybe I behaved in those relationships are also sadly mirrored in some of Juliet's flaws and, and struggles. So I do, I mean, I have to admit that. But I, I never suffered this type of loss directly, but close enough that I felt like I could feel my way into to some of the losses in the story. One of the things that Amy and I were talking about is your book, The Other Mother, would be a really great book to talk about in a book club because there's so many layers. It's like an onion, you know, and even if you've never been a mother, you know, a biological mother, as you said, there's lots of different facets. I mean, there's lots of different ways that a person can mother other people that is relatable. So it's not a a, a narrow version of what a mother is, but a very broad definition, I think. 
Yeah, I certainly hope so. You know, again, that's how I felt in all these different ways that I've mothered over the years. And and the other thing that's at least interesting to me about the book, because so much of my own experience of being the child and the adult child, and like, I feel like it's also a lot about fathers and daughters. And so for me, again, you know, I was a daughter, I still am a daughter, and my relationship with my father was a very powerful one. And I liked putting that aspect too. Like I, I kind of was like, well, in a book, that seems to be just about mothers and motherhood and these two women having this child and then everything that happened as to how it got sort of destroyed in a, in a certain way, as far as how they, you know, originally thought of creating this family. Then it was like, oh, but there's so much about fathers and daughters. There's so much about how we grow up and how we think we're going to be as a parent and based on our own childhood and some of those things. And so what I liked about what I could do in this book because of the different sections with the different narrators and then moving through time that you get through the flashbacks and through the characters just talking you get to see these women when they were kids growing up and their relationships both of them with their fathers and and then you get to you know understand more about their fathers when they were young men before they even became parents and you know to me it's it, it is I love that idea of the onion that you just said and and the layers and and I certainly I you know I worked on it for years I tried to put all that into it in a way that seemed sort of seamless and unexpected, you know, where it's like, you, you think maybe it's, you've gotten to the last one and then you, you just like with an onion, you realize, oh yeah, there's one more and it just keeps <laughs> going. So I, I'm, I'm happy I got to sort of look at all those things because in my own life with various identities that I have, I can't easily separate them. So even when I'm parenting my kids and I'm spending time with them. It's like, I'm always referencing my own childhood or something about my parents, something about when I went to school. Like I I feel that even in my regular life, I'm in my mind sort of always moving between the adult Rachel that I am now and my 30 something Rachel that was, you know, having kids. And then my 20 something that was still growing up and figuring out my life. And Something about the book for me allows that same kind of fluidity, which I, I hope works. I understand that this side of Providence, that's your second book. That's told in rotating narration. And the other mother is told through kind of various perspectives. So tell us a little bit about narration choices that you make as an author. I, I mean, do you kind of go into it thinking, I want to have it narrated a certain way? Or does that sort of come secondary? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I'm so glad you asked. I did think a lot about it and, and and it came to me as a reader first. And so I was inspired by William Faulkner. He's one of my favorite writers going back to like high school and studying literature before I ever thought I would be a novelist. And I remember reading As I Lay Dying, which was his novel that had all the multiple narrators where it's very short where it could be like a, a paragraph or two pages, and then you move to another family member. So when I was creating This Side of Providence, I mirrored that. I was inspired by that style. And I think that for that book, it made a lot of sense because I was moving forward in time only. So it was very immediate. And it was a lot of it was first person from these different family members, and it was all present tense. And it was very much like you're just moving. The story takes place over a full, just a year in life of this family. And you start and you just keep going forward. And the way that the action picks up and 
and drops. It reminds me of like a, a relay race with the baton where you just, mm-hmm. you pass the baton when you're in the grade school and, and then they run a little bit and then you pass the baton. And that's the image I had in my mind for this side of Providence. And, and I liked it and I thought it worked. But when I was thinking about this one, I thought to myself, oh, I want this to be larger chunks. And again, I was inspired by Faulkner and his novel, The Sound and the Fury, has these sections. There are four sections and they're dated and you sort of get the whole overstory told a couple different times by the different characters and the different dates. And that was my original inspiration where I was like, oh, I I like multiple narrators, but I want to stay with each narrator a little bit longer than I did in my second novel. So that's why for this one, I was like, let me just figure out, you know, how to stay with them. Because when I first started the book, I didn't know I would start with Jenry in the present. How am I going to tell the story? And I felt very connected to several of the characters. And I was like, hmm, how do I enter the story? And then I thought, okay, I think I can start out with him and then have the secret come out and then have that be the catalyst as opposed to, you know, in other books that might've been the, you know, the big three quarter point is finding out about the mother or something. But Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I want that to be early on. But then a lot of it is what happened earlier. And that's when I, when I realized, oh, and if I move back and forth through time and that's when I decided to have each of the characters sort of narrate a section and I called them books, you know, so book one, book two, book three. And then I thought, well, I need to be in the present and then others need to be in the past. And that's when I decided to do them alternating. So like book one and three and five and seven are all in the present and two, four and six are in the past and they they move within the past, but they start further back. And that to me somehow made sense. You know, I think for a creative person, I'm also kind of mathematical and I do like things to be structured and ordered in a certain way. And so once I had that in my mind, then it somehow, it felt like it was easier to diagram in my mind. And when I pictured it, it didn't seem sort of crazy and, and overwhelming. It was like, that was like my little trick for how to handle the narration, how to make it work, not just for the reader's experience, which of course I was interested in, but even for my own experience of writing it. Okay, this is going to help ground me in the story to figure out what I can reveal in which book based on the parameters that I'd set up. And then I always knew I wanted to reveal things to the reader that the characters might not know, you know, so that the reader is the one who is knowing most as they go along. And there are other people who don't know everything. and, And you realize that more and more, the deeper you get into the book. It's funny that you should mention diagram because as you were talking, I was thinking about, oh my gosh, did she have to have like a spreadsheet to do this? My question is like, as the writer, you're sort of all knowing, right? You know what all the details are, but as you're writing from different characters' point of view, they don't necessarily know all those things. Do you know know what I'm saying? So was that hard to keep track? You know, it it was kind of hard. I definitely had notes And I had little charts, not like a huge diagram, but I did have some charts for each character. And I would always sort of write down details about them. And, you know, I do that in general with books where I write down like physical characteristics or traits, you know, things they like and dislike. I like to have it all in one place in case I'm writing a scene later 
and I can't remember, you know what I mean? It's like, is this person left-handed or right-handed? If this, does this person, you know, do they eat meat? Do they love music? Like I just have to know everything and I can't always remember. So I, I go back and I write it all down. And one of the things I was doing when I would do that is write down how much they knew about everything, what they know and when they learn. So I also had to have a timeline in addition to the sort of character specific charts. My timeline went all the way back to Winston, which is like the grandfather. When did he went to college? When he, you know, when he met his wife, when they went on their date, all the way up through the present and who learns what, when. And I definitely had to keep reviewing that myself so that I didn't break my own rules or cheat in any way or like <laughs> have somebody say something that doesn't make sense, you know, later. That makes my I head hurt to, thinking about I it. Same. I feel like I need to go get an Excedrin right now. <laughs> it was fun. Like it ended up being fun. It's sort of like its own puzzle that you're trying to solve. And then once you've solved it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to then cover it up and make it the, the revealing because it's like, I know everything, but I, I now have to trace backwards and cover things up for the reader and reveal it at the right time. For me, the other mother asks really thoughtful questions about race and gender, LBGTQ issues. But the question that stuck out to me was what constitutes family? Is it purely biology? Is it the stick to itness, you know, sticking by somebody, the loyalty? Is it a combination of both? And your novel features messy relationships and dysfunctional families. I have this good friend. I mean, she loves novels about dysfunctional families. And she says, dysfunctional puts the fun in reading. So do you love a good dysfunctional family story? Absolutely. You know, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely agree with that. I think it's fun. You know, I think in different ways, a lot of us feel like we come from these dysfunctional families, or we at least have elements or periods in the family that was dysfunctional. And, and to me, writing about it after and kind of fictionalizing it, and having it be inspired from either my family or people that I've known have been close to extended family, I feel like that's what makes it fun because it's like you've survived it the first time when it was really happening and doing it the second time when you're writing about it, to me, it feels more like empowering and you have that distance and then you can also manipulate it and you can make people do things, you know, differently than happen in real life and for better or for worse, you know, you can make people worse than they were in real life just to sort of exaggerate the bad guys or you can write happy endings that you might not have had in your own real life. So to me, I definitely find it fun. I feel like boring, even keel families, I just, they're not interesting to me. You know, I definitely feel like the quirky, the eccentric, you know, the odd, the strange, the dysfunctional, that's what I'm interested in. Providence, Rhode Island has been the setting for at least two of your novels, this one included. And I know that you went to Brown University in Providence, but that's not where you don't live in Providence now. You live in Los Angeles, I believe, right? Yes, I live in okay. Los Angeles. And I've been here, you know, for the better part of the last like 20 years, um, even closer to that. I mean, I moved out here in the mid 90s to go to graduate school. And I love it here. I feel like this is my home. But I definitely like writing about Providence. I grew up there, you know, and as a little kid, starting at the age of like seven or eight, I lived right in the heart of Providence in the very, in this very interesting area I've actually never written about. But I grew up in the jewelry district, which was basically when I was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, it was pretty much abandoned with a couple of bars and restaurants. And now it's a very like happening place. And my parents, they bought a floor of a loft 
along with a bunch of other artists. And we were like the first residential space in the time doing something kind of like a New York City, you know, Lower East Side thing. So the way I grew up was very unique and, and strange. And nobody else lived downtown. Nobody else lived in a building with a bunch of artists. And, you know, it was a it was a wacky childhood. And that part I've never even written about, but I hope to one day. But I lived in a couple of different neighborhoods of, of Providence. And it's an interesting city. You know, it's small enough to feel kind of safe and homey, but it's also really diverse. And I like the history of uh, Rhode Island. You know, the fact that Roger Williams, who who started Rhode Island, had broken off from like the Puritans and Massachusetts, and and they wanted Rhode Island to be this place with religious freedom. And so I feel like it sort of has this artsy mix, a lot of diversity. And so I have found that it's been a really interesting, vibrant place. And and a doable city doesn't feel too large. It it feels still very um, knowable. You know, you can bike from one side to the other and not be particularly athletic. You know, it's it's just five miles or something. I mean, it's a small place in Rhode Island. The state is tiny. So yeah, I think I know it really well. And I like writing about it because of that. And it's not one of those cities that's been like overly written about. It's like not that many people are writing about Providence. So it still feels kind of fresh. Feels like if I'm if I'm known at some point, if I keep writing about it, for that, I can't hate that. I mean, it's it's where I spent, you know, a good part of the first 18 years of my life. And it definitely, you know, molded me in a lot of ways. And and I also find like I haven't written much about Los Angeles, even though I've lived here for so long. I think that because I'm not in Providence any longer, a different part of my brain and my memory it seems to be pulled, like I, I pull ideas and memories of the smells and how things look and the cobblestones. Like when I grew up, there were still cobblestones downtown because it was hadn't been paved over that were like 150 years old and just that kind of history. And with the distance, I can have a clearer set of eyes in a certain way. And I also kind of test my own memories. And it's like, if I remember something and I haven't been there in a long time, I certainly haven't lived there in a long time, it must mean that it was pretty profound. So I trust my sensory memories of parks that I grew up in and went to and the way things look and uh, the way the buildings are and, and that kind of thing, the temperature, just the way the air is in the spring or the fall or that kind of stuff. So I like that. And it's I guess it's also a way to travel there in my mind without having to go in reality. And so for that reason, I'll probably keep writing about Providence, you know, if it suits my next project. I also think there's something about where you grow up that looms large in your mind, even after you leave. And maybe if it wasn't even a place that you, like where I grew up, it wasn't necessarily a place I ever wanted to live again, but it was such an integral part of your formation as a person. Exactly. Like You did an interview with Literary Mama, an online magazine, and you talked about revising The Other Mother, and you said it was really interesting. What made it interesting? Was it the what you mentioned that, you know, you had this timeline and so many characters telling stories? And wh- what was it about the process that made revisions of this book interesting, possibly challenging? Yeah, it was elements of that, but but it was also because it was a very unique process for me. Part of that was I worked on it for many years and with breaks in between. So I had, over the time that I was working on it, I had like a lot of life changes. 
I started writing the book and then it, I got divorced and that took a chunk of my time. You know, my father died. That took a chunk of my time. I repartnered and got remarried. And, you know, over those times, like life would happen and I would just put the book down. And like when my dad died, I was grieving for a long time and I didn't touch it for like a year. And I think because of that, I had a, a certain distance from the work every time I came back to it. But I also felt closer to it in a way because I felt like I kept having to reclaim it. And the other thing was that I shared a draft before I shared with my agent or editor with my wife. And we ended up talking about it in this ongoing way that was really interesting to me and very different from other processes. Like I hadn't brought any any previous partners into my work and other drafts. And with this one, I shared it with her. And the great thing about that was her perspective on some of the characters that I would say, one in particular, that I was not as like sort of naturally close to in terms of my own perspective or ability to, to empathize with them. She was able to point out that I was still shortchanging a couple mm-hmm. of the books in that early draft. And I mean, that was such an important thing that I could not have seen because part of working on this for me was healing some of the wounds, you know, of my past, some of the ways that I hurt people and some of the losses that I suffered. And so I felt like I wanted to try to tell all their stories, but what I had to do a lot in revision was make sure that I was equally compassionate across all the books with all the different characters. And that's something that took time that revision process with my wife and talking about it and her feedback. And and we're sort of opposite in how we think. She helped me see the spots that I had not gone deep enough in emoting and in, in, in convincing the reader of how that person's really feeling. So it was very helpful to me to have that period of time and to to sort of over the course of, I'd say a year or two, we would have these ongoing conversations and then she would read new pages and we would talk again. And it was like living with these characters, which which most novelists I've heard feel the same way. You know, you feel like you live with the characters in your book, but what's rare, I think, is to live with it within another relationship that you're having in real life (laughs) with another person and you're continuing to kind of check in and talk about them in a way that was really deep and just profoundly insightful, you know, to, to get that other person's thoughts and, and to incorporate them in, in a way that I've just never had that before. And I, I don't, I don't know if I'll have it again, because even though I'll, I plan to show her my work, but there was something about the beginning of our relationship where she had read this work early and she sort of saw it evolve over years as our relationship evolved. So it's almost like, our relationship is like all caught up in the middle of the book in in ways, not in terms of plot or anything that happens in the book, but just in terms of the depth of our connection. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the, the book now exists and we both have a tenderness towards it. So I think that, that that part is what makes it particularly interesting to me and definitely unique to to the other mother. Well, I want to switch gears and talk just a little bit about your life as a reader, uh, as a book lover. And so I'm wondering, do you have a favorite independent bookstore, one that you just always like to go to? I always like to give shout outs to independent bookstores because they do such good work. Yes. 
Oh my gosh, absolutely. I love independent bookstores and I, same thing. I mean, I, I visit them. I post about them. You know, I'm always trying to give them love as well. My local independent bookstore here um, in LA is Roman's Books. It's been around for like more than a hundred years. It's in Pasadena. And I've always had a for all my books, all three of them, I've, I've always had a reading in person there. And that's always really special to me. So I love Romans. And in Providence, I've been going to this bookstore called Books on the Square for many years, uh, going back to my childhood. And I love them. And there's a new bookstore I really like in Providence called Riff Raff. And it's actually a bookstore bar. Um, and to me, that's like a lovely combination of uh, books and and drinks. So I like to I like to support them and they're kind of near my old neighborhood where I grew up so I like that. All right. Well, I want to know how do you feel about reading long ass books? Are are you the type of person that you love nothing more than to just dive into a 700-page book or do you try to steer clear? What what are your feelings about really really long books? I love long ass books. Um <laughs> And in fact, the other mother would be even longer if I had had my way, um, because as is, it's it's like four four thirty something or whatever in the in the final hardcover. And at one point, the manuscript was like almost five hundred pages, and I had to cut a lot. You know, my agent was not as happy with the long ass book idea. I think she thought you know selling it um, was going to be kind of stressful, but no. I totally love them. And I feel like for me, it's it's nothing is better than seeing a book, starting to love it and being like, oh my God, I have like hundreds of pages left, you know, and, and to feel like you can just sort of live in it and go on about your life and then keep incorporating it back as opposed to ones that you can just, you know, get through in a, in a weekend. Um, I really like the length because I like to live with them and I like to live with the characters just like... I've lived with my, you know, with my own books for so long. And I would say like, you know, going back, I mean, I've loved like the Poisonwood Bible by uh, Barbara Kingsolver, Donna Tartt's books that are long. I remember The Secret History when I was in college that I love, you know, Jonathan Franzen writes some really good long ass books. And I even (laughs) like long ass biographies. So like, I'll read, you know, biographies of artists a lot of times. And, And with those, it's like, the longer, the better. Because, you know, I like to read those like at night before I go to sleep and just sort of learn about other people's lives and artists and how they lived, particularly like other times, you know, back in the 20th century. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's the more that, you know, the better to just have that time and and space with them. I I guess I'm a commitment phobic. When I get a really good one and I get myself to to pick a big long book and if it's really good like Lonesome Dove is probably one of my favorite books ever and it's a long ass book. Yes. Uh, but before doing it I I am a little bit like I'm not sure I can make that kind of commitment. That is a really <laughs> long book. That's going to be a lot of my my reading time spent on that book, you know. So it better be good. So Yes. <laughs> See, even 400 pages. I've gotten to the point where to me, it's like, okay, if we're getting into 650, 700 and up, to me, that feels like a long book. But I don't know, in the 350 to 400 page range, I'm like, well, eh, that's, I don't know, that doesn't seem especially, especially long book, to you, especially long. I mean, like your book is solid, but it's not, I wouldn't use it as a doorstop. You know what I'm saying? Okay, like, good. I'm thinking about those, <laughs> those books that could be a weapon. That, those right. I guess those are what I envision when when I think about <laughs> long ass books. So, 
I think it's a good time now to take a quick break. And when we come back, Amy and I and our guest, Rachel Harper, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Rachel Harper, the author of The Other Mother, and with Carrie. And I want to know what you're reading. I listened to an audiobook. When I tell you the title, the full title of the book, you may pick up on why I chose this. It's called The Case of the Missing Moonstone. And then in parentheses, it's called The Wollstonecraft Detective Agency by Jordan Stratford. So this is a book for young readers, and it features as the two main characters, Ada Lovelace, who in real life was the daughter of Lord Byron, the rogue poet, and she was also the world's first computer programmer. So it features Ada Lovelace and Mary Godwin, and Mary Godwin was the daughter of feminist writer Mary Wollstonecraft. So in this story, they end up being tutored together in the same home and become friends. And as young, smart, curious girls might, they start their own detective agency to solve the case of a lost jewel. Their tutor happens to be Percy Shelley, which sets up this potential romance between him and Mary. Now, in reality, Mary Wollstonecraft, who later became Mary Shelley, was 18 years older than Ada Lovelace. I like this book because... It took real women from real life and worked them into a story. Uh, I'm a big fan of Frankenstein. So I liked it for that reason. But it was a quick, easy little detective story that was a nice little palate cleanser book to, to get me in between other maybe longer selections. So that's what I read. It sounds like it would be a good type of book for people who also liked, oh, Enola Holmes. Like I read one of those Enola Holmes uh, little books by Nancy Springer, where it's the sister of Sherlock Holmes. And those were super fun. So this sounds like it would be a, you know, a good uh, In a similar vein. Yeah. Yeah, In a similar vein. Yeah, for sure. Rachel, what have you been reading? I just read this really great collection, a collection of essays by women called Women Talk Money. Breaking the Taboo. And I thought it was just a really great collection because it's not like a finance book about like helping you with money, but it's helping you deal by listening to all these other people reading their stories, all the different ways that money can impact us. And that as women in particular, like what are the secrets around money? What are the shame that people have about having too much, not having enough? impactful moments of their lives. And I mean, it's such a huge sort of force for the world. And yet I think it's it's interesting how people don't put enough time on the idea of, of women talking about money and talking about what it means to them. It's sort of as a, like a masculine idea of, you know, men go into finance. And, and so it, it was a great collection, really diverse, uh, very moving and important. I thought it was really timely. Um, and can I mention one more quickly? Sure. I read this, I read a book called Breath by James Nestor, and it's an amazing book. came out a couple of years ago about how we breathe and the importance of breathing and breathing through the nose. And it sounds like it would be boring, but it was so fascinating. It was like going back to Paleolithic ages and like we had larger noses and then our brains got bigger and our noses got smaller. And why like you can have all these health issues if you don't breathe through your nose and you know, and he just goes back in, in time and talking about native populations in America and, and how all across different cultures, 
people have always had this wisdom of how we breathe. And it was this instinctual thing, but it's like we're not being taught anymore how to breathe in this way. And then he theorizes that some of our modern health problems are tied to not slowing down, not, you know, he talks about breathing fast sometimes, breathing slower. It just, it sort of blew my mind because I hadn't ever thought about breathing outside of like huffing and puffing when you're exercising. And that's like the most I ever thought about breathing. And it really opened my eyes. It was a, a quick read and really fascinating. I love I, books like that, nonfiction books that are like like a micro topic. I, I think mm-hmm. there's a term for that kind of book, but I can't, I can't think of what it is. Amy here, the, the term for this is called a micro history. A couple years ago, I read a book and I can't even think of the name of it now. The name of this book is actually The Sound of a Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. But it was about a snail and a woman who was chronically ill and she had this little like uh, terrarium and it had a little snail in it. And she watched that snail for like a year. But then she also researched the life of a snail, which sounds kind of boring and slow. And I guess it is. But it was fascinating. It was I mean, fascinating. Exactly. Was slow. It was fascinating. <laughs> so I love nonfiction books like that. And she could not stop talking about snails for like ever. I, I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> No, exactly. That's exactly how I feel about this book. Yeah. I'm like mentioning it to everyone. I'm like talking to my daughter. I'm like, you know, you need to think about whether you're breathing through your nose. And, you know, she's like in college. She's like, what? I'm like, this can really change your life in college. You need to just like tape your mouth and make sure you're breathing through your nose. You know, and I'm definitely like mentioning it to people because it's fascinating, you know, the things we don't think about. So I love those micro topics too. All right. Well, Amy, have you been reading about detective stories or finance or breathing? Well, not a detective story, but this one is a crime fiction book, mystery book, I guess. It's called Shudder, S-H-U-T-T-E-R, like the Shudder on film by Ramona Emerson. And I seek this book out because I heard the author, Ramona Emerson, interviewed on the radio show Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I don't know how many times I have said this about books that I've, I've talked about on this show. Well, I heard an interview with Terry Gross and then I picked up the book. That, that's exactly what happened with this. And I was intrigued by her story. So Ramona Emerson is a DNA author. Amy here. I pronounced this term incorrectly and I want to try to correct it. It should be pronounced Diné. The difference between Diné and Navajo is that Diné is their own word in their own language for themselves. And Navajo was a word given to them by Spanish settlers. And a filmmaker who grew up in New Mexico. So she spent many years as a crime scene photographer. An interesting choice for a Native American writer because in many Native cultures, doing jobs or working with death is kind of taboo. But that's what she did. She, she worked for the police department. But Emerson uses this experience in her debut novel, and the main character is Rita Totachene, and she's also a crime scene photographer in Albuquerque, but she grew up with her grandmother on a Navajo reservation. And the most visceral scene in the book, it's it's the opening scene, it really packs a punch, and Rita is photographing a horrendous scene where a woman has fallen off an overpass onto a highway below, and she's hit by an uh, oncoming semi-truck. And pieces of this woman are all over the highway. And Rita has to tag and photograph each one. It's incredibly visceral and and grotesque, but it's a great introduction to what someone in this line of work does. What we also quickly find out is that Rita sees dead people. 
And she's seen them since she was a child. And this gift, and I'm putting this in air quotes, has always scared her traditional Navajo grandmother. And her grandmother takes her to the medicine man on the reservation to be cleansed. And so until now, though, the ghosts have never been threatening to her. But then when she encounters Irma, the woman who fell from the overpass, Irma is something different. Irma is furious and she haunts Rita. She will not leave her alone because the police have said that this incident was a suicide. But Irma insists that she did not kill herself. And she wants Rita to get the police to figure out who threw her off the overpass and why. And so this task takes Rita and the reader into the underworld of crime and challenges of being a Navajo doing a job that would be taboo in her culture. So another cool thing about this book is the author and the main character's love of cameras and photography. So each chapter is titled by the name of a type of camera. And in the chapter, the reader finds out the significance of that camera to Rita from her childhood all the way up to present day. So this book is gritty and raw and at times grotesque. But I would say that probably that opening chapter, that opening scene is really the worst of it. So if you can get past that part, the rest of the book I didn't find as gory, I guess. But if that's a trigger for you, I would pass on this book. But if you're interested in getting a unique viewpoint on Native culture through a character who is struggling to walk the line between Western culture and Navajo beliefs, plus a good mystery and some ghosts, I always love a good ghost story, give this one a try. It was long listed for the National Book Award just this past year. So again, the name of that book is Shudder by Ramona Emerson. That one sounds really good. I'll have to add that to my list as well. Yep, definitely. All right, very good. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask, we're going to ask Rachel some questions. So (laughs) we'll be back. (laughs) We're back with Rachel Harper, author of The Other Mother. Rachel, are you ready to answer some questions so we can get to know you better? Yes, I am. All right. (laughs) You spent some time as a child in Minnesota. So tell us a little bit about these Minnesota trips. Were they vacations? And what did you miss from from those Minnesota times that you don't get in Los Angeles? Okay. Yes, I love Minnesota. And I was very fortunate to have grown up spending my summers there. So my mother was from uh, Minnesota and she was raised on a farm. She, you know, she didn't have a, you know, a bathroom in the house. They had an outhouse until she was like 12. So they were very like Minnesotan, rural country folks. And we had a connection going back and I loved it so much. Um, when I was growing up, we had a little cabin on a lake, you know, right next door to my grandmother, my mom's mom, and my aunt was just up the hill. And it was really idyllic in so many ways because it was the opposite of this very urban fast-paced life that I had in Providence growing up. It was just like very family immersed, very old-fashioned. You know, we were like barefoot for the whole summer. I think we didn't shower. We swam in the lake every day and we would like wash our hair in the lake. It was very sort of old-fashioned. My family had gardens and we caught fish in the lake and it was just sort of idyllic, even though it obviously had its challenges too. But I miss so much about it. I miss the air And I miss like my aunts 
zucchini bread with chocolate chips and mm. the fish fries and the pig roasts and all that sort of food family. You know, I wrote about it a lot in Brass Ankle Blues because that was my first novel. And like many first novels, you know, it's often inspired by some element of someone's childhood. And like a lot of it was set in Minnesota and on that lake. And, you know, again, there was, you know, a, a family, you know, breaking up and dealing with the young girls coming of age. You know, I think all of our childhoods are like a past we can never get to. But I think for that, the land and and the, the history of that in my family, just having it go back for generations was very important to me. And it's gone now in a way that's been hard for me to accept. And I still go back to Minnesota, but our cabin is gone. And, you know, I still feel attached to the family and the and the memories there. It's, it's a little bit of a sorrow that, you know, I think a lot of people feel sometimes for their childhood or those times that are long past. But I think that the simplicity of the land and the kind of the simple beauty and all of the lakes, um, you know, I'm a real swimmer and I grew up, I swam like at three years old. And, and I think the water has always been a very powerful place to me, swimming in the lakes and just feeling very comfortable in water and feeling that as a metaphor in my writing, you know, I feel like I always have some sort of water. I've got water scenes, people swimming and, and all the sort of regeneration, rejuvenation of of water as source of life. I, I feel all of that that I believe in comes from my my early time in Minnesota. Okay, so now I am going to grill you a little bit about bourbon because on your Twitter profile you profess a love of bourbon, and you know Carrie and I are here in Louisville, and you are on the faculty of the Spalding School for Writing. And so I know you've spent a little bit of time here in Louisville. So talk to us a little bit about bourbon. Okay. Well, I do love bourbon. That is true. And I really came to love it because of my time in Louisville at Spalding and going, teaching there. I've taught there for the last like 16 years and it would always mean a trip to Louisville. And, and when I was coming like every six months, every time I would come, I would try a different bourbon. And I would also get you know, my students who were often local, you know, to take me out, let's go to this distillery. And I feel like I cannot dare offending one by saying <laughs> that I have a favorite um, okay. when I have so many favorites. I think I, I like whiskey too, but after spending that time in, in Kentucky and understanding that bourbon is the, the, the whiskey from Kentucky, there's just something about that little sharp snap that I love. You know, when I think about my relationships with my students and the folks in Kentucky who've been so good to me over the years. I do have to say that the, the glass of bourbon on the rocks is often in the background, if not the foreground of a lot of those conversations. And when I just think of going there, it's like literary, it's, you know, us talking about books and writing and bourbon, you know, the history I like and flavors. And, and I also, I like to write about alcohol too and food. And so I feel like part of it for me that, that it becomes like a sensuous experience that I'm like, oh, this is very fun to write about the colors and the flavors. For a long time when I was younger, I liked gin and it was very like fresh and gin and tonic with lime. But in these later years, the older I've gotten and because of my Kentucky experience, I definitely would say bourbon is my favorite alcohol. All right. Yeah. What is your favorite flower that you would love to get in a bouquet and why do you like it? My favorite flower, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right because it's well, it's a very funny word, 
but it's ranunculus. How do you spell it? I think it's R-A-N-U-N-C-U-L-U-S. There's a whole lot of U's in it. But the ranunculus is my favorite flower because I feel like it is so beautiful the way that there are so many layers of the petals. If you Google it, if you're not familiar with it, it's sort of like it would be in the tulip family, except it is so packed in there that it's just layer after layer and it looks mm. so tight and beautiful. It has no fragrance, but it reminds me of, you know, old books when they used to print them with those onion skin pages that were so thin and, and it's just so layered and packed in there. There's, there's gotta be some metaphor for something in, in all those layers. It's symmetrical. And it's, it's, you know, got a nice round shape, but the beauty is in the simplicity and the repetition, I think, of all the flower petals in it. It's just this tight little circle and then it gets wider and wider as it opens. But I definitely feel like those folds and those layers are why I love it so much because it seems like so much of it is unseen even after it blooms. I'm looking at a picture of them right now, and it really resembles to me like an onion. I'm looking at some that are pink, like a pink onion. If the la- if an onion's layers were much thinner and velvety and silky, you know what I mean. But it's got it's got those layers like an onion. Exactly. So maybe that's why I'm I'm drawn. Yeah, to it. just like what you were saying about the book earlier, where it's just revealing the layers and and you know parts that you'll that you'll never see that are sort of tucked in there underneath. But even what you do see is so beautiful. So, but yeah, that's why it's my favorite. Well, Rachel, I loved getting all the details about your book after just finishing it. I gave your book like four and a half stars. It was wonderful. And I'm hoping that people will read it, but especially book clubs, you should consider this book. There's lots of questions about motherhood and families and all kinds of good stuff. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I had such a great time spending this afternoon with you folks. So I really appreciate it. You can find Rachel on social media at Instagram at Harps in Cali, H-A-R-P-S-I-N-C-A-L-I and on her website, rachelmharper.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. 